Hi, I'm Jordan. And I'm Kit. Welcome to Starry Time, where stars plus lines equal stories. On this month's podcast, we are going to be visiting Taurus, the bull of the night sky. Taurus the Bull, as with all of our subjects this season, is one of the 88 IAU-recognized constellations. Mm-hmm. And as with the other Zodiac constellations, it's one of the great... Great, 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 great. 48 constellations identified by Ptolemy. Ptolemy definitely got the Zodiac cover, but mm-hmm. in future seasons, we're probably going to veer a little bit more from his catalog. But for this season, Ptolemy's going to get a lot of shout-outs. Mm-hmm. Taurus is a rather large constellation, uh, befitting a bull. It is ranked 17 out of the 88 IAU constellations, and out of the 12 Zodiac constellations, it is the 6th largest, after Virgo, Aquarius, Leo, Pisces, and Sagittarius. Speaking of Sagittarius, it would be remiss of us Mm. as a podcast that deals with astronomy not to shout out the imaging of the black hole in Sagittarius A, which was released earlier this month. I posted a ton about it on Twitter, uh, so you can check out at StarrytimePod for some links, and definitely going to be easy to pick the gold star for Sagittarius when we get there. Yeah, that sounds great. I know you (laughs) love a black hole, Sagittarius Mm -hmm. A black hole. Can't wait to learn more. I'll, I'll keep that you know, percolating in my mind. And uh, once we get to Sagittarius, I'm sure I will have already forgotten and be excited (laughs) all over again. Perfect. Back to Taurus. This constellation has been associated with the bull in many ancient societies as early as the Bronze and Copper Age, when it served as an indicator of the spring equinox before it moved into Aries, as we discussed in the last episode. Mm -hmm. And the bull association goes really, really far back. Some believe that this constellation was associated with the bull in cave paintings found around 1500 BC, which would then put it in the upper Paleolithic or late Stone Age period. I think that's right. Deep in human history, for Mm -hmm. sure. That's as old as the Ice Age, even. People have been messing around with bull constellations in the stars. So this one goes way, way back. Definitely. So where do we find it? What does it look like? What were your first impressions of this constellation, Jordan? Yeah, this one to me either looked maybe like a Y on its side or maybe like a bird side Mm -hmm. view or kind of looked like a bracket for like a Mm -hmm. sports tournament you know like in March Madness where they have the top seed and the bottom seed and then a line for the winner um Mm -hmm. yeah I was trying to piece it together don't really see a bull but I see something what about you Kit what'd you see well I mean for the first time since Aquarius I feel like I saw something uh did I see a bull no no but I did see a Ah, that's the perfect description. Right? Yep. And I could be convinced that the spur-like shape is horns. Yep, that makes Um, sense. So I was like, okay, okay. It looks like, you know, a tuning fork. But yeah, I I think that those could be horns. So yeah, this is probably the closest we've come since Aquarius, which was vaguely human-like. The the little little, uh, spikes there seem like they could be be bull-like. For the first time in a long time, Mm -hmm. we got some chance of finding it based on the description. (laughs) All right, but let's get a little bit more technical here. Oh, we'd love to get technical. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Taurus is between Aries and Gemini with a right ascension of four hours and a declination of 15 degrees. Taurus is visible between plus 90 degrees and minus 65 degree latitudes. It's best seen in January around 9 p.m. 
And unlike pretty much every other constellation we've covered so far, mm -hmm. it's actually pretty distinct and a relatively bright constellation. Yeah, and I mean, there are a lot of bright stars in the sky, so you can get into the right neighborhood of Taurus in a couple of ways. So the first way is to go to Orion's Belt and use that to point you to the brightest star in the constellation, which we'll tell you about momentarily. And you can also get into the right area of the sky by looking for the Pleiades, which is a feature of the night sky that a lot of folks are, are already familiar with. Yeah, we got all sorts of mm -hmm. good stuff to come. All right, Kit, we now know what it looks like. I think your description of a tuning fork or a spur is much better than anything I came up with. <laughs> and we know where to find it. Let's start getting into the brightest stars of the constellation. Yeah, so we are back to a constellation that has a lot of stars in it. Mm -hmm. There are 19 main stars in the constellation. 17 of the stars are named by the IAU. So once again, let's just focus on the three brightest ones. That sounds like a great idea. I'll get us started with the brightest star, which is shockingly... Alpha Tauri. <laughs> Big win for Bayer, his mm -hmm. second month in a row of success. Albeit, we said this is a 12,000-year-old constellation, <laughs> so he had some time to figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, but Alpha Tauri is also known as Aldebaran. Not Alderaan, the planet blown up in Star Wars. Aldebaran. And its name comes from the Arabic Aldebaran, meaning follower. It is meant to indicate that it is a follower of the Pleiades. It is an orange giant star with a visible magnitude of 0.86, though it is a variable star. So that can range between 0.75 to 0.95. That's all a very complicated way of putting it, as saying it's very, very big and <laughs> very, very bright. It's about the 13th brightest star in the night sky, and it is 44 times the radius of our sun. Like we're saying, pretty, pretty big. Very, very big, yes. And it may host a planet that is five to six times the mass of Jupiter, mm -hmm. which in turn could have moons in a habitable zone. Unfortunately, it's about 65 light years away, so it wouldn't <laughs> be one of our first destinations. But it's located on one of the horns of the bull. Yeah, and actually Pioneer 10 is headed in this general direction towards this system. So we should definitely do a Pioneer 10 asterism at some point. Yeah, we got to give credit to the deep space probes. Guys been doing work since the 70s, 50 years. Yeah, 1972 is when it was launched. All right, great. Back to that. Back to Taurus. Okay, <laughs> save it for the asterism. All right, I find I will. Just so excited. Space probes are really cool, and it's really weird to think about them, like, floating out there in space doing what they do. The second brightest star is Beta Tauri. It's 131 light years from Earth, and it is a blue-white giant star. Wow. A lot of these giant stars here. I guess everything's bigger in Taurus? Everything is bigger in Taurus. After all, it is a bull. And this star is at the top of the horn. It has the name Alnath from an Arabic word meaning the budding horn. Mm. So this star is really interesting too because it has a bear designation of Gamma Agora. And this is because both Ptolemy and Bear considered this star to be part of two different constellations, which is kind of wild. Doing most double the, duty here. Double duty. Most of the time, the second designation is dropped, mm -hmm. but this star is actually located near the galactic anti-center. Wait, the galactic anti-center? Journey mm -hmm. to the anti-center of the galaxy? <laughs> so wait, what's that? It's just like the opposite of the galactic center, right? Yeah, exactly. So the space on the celestial sphere that's opposite to the galactic center of the Milky Way and the cent the galactic center of the Milky Way is actually where that Sagittarius A black hole image is from. 
All connects here on Starry mm-hmm. Time. We got you covered. <laughs> All right. The third brightest star is Eta Tauri. It's actually a binary star system known as Alcyone, which comes from the Greek mythology where Alcyone was one of the seven daughters of Atlas and the ocean nymph Pleione. Together, the seven sisters are known as the Pleiades. Mm-hmm. It has a visible magnitude of 2.87, and the brighter star in the binary system is the brightest star of the Pleiades cluster. Oh my gosh, I love the Pleiades cluster so much. I have a lot of memories of looking at it, like being out walking in the woods in New Hampshire, walking mischief, our childhood dog, and just looking at the Pleiades. So I want to take just a very tiny little brief aside on the Pleiades. Just a little. I mean, they'll get their own asterism, mm-hmm. like Pioneer 10 too. But yes, please, give us a quick snapshot. So from an astronomical point of view, the Pleiades, or the Seven Sisters, or Messier 45, is an asterism that's described as an open star cluster. What that means is it's basically a group of stars that were formed in the same molecular cloud and are generally the same age, in this case, 75 to 150 million years old. Whoa. And the, yeah, pretty old. So the Pleiades is among the closest of these open star clusters to us on Earth. The closest of these open star clusters is the Hyades, which is also an open star cluster located in Taurus. Mm-hmm, exactly. Unfortunately, the Pleiades, like other star clusters, will disperse due to gravitational interactions, and they anticipate this happening for the Pleiades in about 250 million years. Quite a run. I mean, even the dinosaurs got to see the Pleiades. <laughs> but yes, one day, far in the future, may they rest in Pleiades. <laughs> okay, great mini dive kit. I'll be looking forward to the asterism. I'm sure you'll crush that too. But okay, Eta Tauri is in this cluster, and it's a blue-white B-type giant star, and it's located 370 light-years from Earth. Yeah, lots of bright stars and asterisms to look at in this constellation. Which leads us to the question of our next segment. Kit, I can't wait to find out. What will be your gold star this month? Welcome back to our segment, Gold Star of the Month, where we alternate picking the star or space object in our constellation of the month that captures our mind, our heart, or our soul. You already mentioned and talked briefly about the Pleiades a bit, and I contributed with a little bit of knowledge on the Hyades, but are either of those your picks? They were definitely contenders, which Mm -hmm. is why I cheated and put them in the earlier segment. (laughs) I I really wanted to choose more than one gold star. Cheater, 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 cheater. I'm not a cheater. I am a rule bender. Kid Irving, the last rule bender. There's so much cool stuff to choose from. But in the end, I kind of made a basic choice mm-hmm. because this object is just, you just can't not pick it. And the object is Messier 1 or the Crab Nebula. Yes. We love a space crab, especially a shiny. Shiny! Beautiful one. But yeah, the Crab Nebula, it's a supernova remnant, right? Yep, exactly right. So it is located about 6,500 light years from us, and it was first noted by Chinese astronomers in 1054 when they saw a bright explosion in the sky. So they actually saw the supernova happen. Incredible. And it, yeah, and it created a remnant, is, is what the astronomers call it, that's six light years wide. Wow. And so a supernova is just a stellar explosion that happens at the end of the life cycle of really big stars, or if a white dwarf 
Dwarf Star has runaway nuclear fission. Uh-oh, gotta watch out for that. I really don't want that to happen to our sun. Well, our sun isn't massive enough to supernova, so we don't have to worry about that Ooh, particular problem. <laughs> Thank goodness. I'm gonna cross that one off my list of existential worries. Thank you. You are welcome. At the center of the Crab Nebula is a neutron star, which are basically these really cool, super dense, tiny objects. Mm. And the only thing that we've observed that's smaller and more dense than this is a black hole. And so this neutron star in the Crab Nebula is spinning nearly at the speed of light, and it produced these little tendril-looking objects in the nebula. Crab Nebula has so much good stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was the right choice. Supernova remnant, neutron star, mega tendrils. I mean, sure, you said it's basic, but it was most certainly a good pick. Yeah, and you can actually see it with a small telescope, and it is literally an image of a star's death. And it's particularly cool that we have a record of the supernova happening. Which is amazing, because it connects us in the present day to the experiences of people nearly a thousand years ago. Mm -hmm. Alright, move over Tea Garden's Dwarf Star, and welcome Crab Nebula to the Gold Star of the Month Club. Kit, it's time to get into the myths. We could link to the Pleiades myth and the Hyades myths here, but we'll save those for their own little mini-episodes. Basically, there are two myths we want to tell here today related to Taurus. The first comes from the Greco-Roman tradition, which we know well, mm. and the second one we want to feature is actually an ancient Babylonian myth. Yeah, I think we felt it was important to tell a non-Greco-Roman myth this month because, hooey, this is a doozy. From Zeus. Doozy indeed. <laughs> Alright, like Aries, which just means ram, Taurus is the Latin word for bull. But which bull? What bull? Who bull? In this case, unfortunately, this bull is Zeus by another name. The Greco-Roman story of Taurus is that of Zeus and Europa. And this story, unfortunately, has a striking resemblance to the story of Ganymede we told mm. a couple months ago. So basically, Europa is a beautiful daughter of the king and queen of Phoenicia, possibly a descendant of Io, but we don't know for sure. Anyways, Zeus takes an interest in her, as he does, mm. and instead of, you know, talking to her, flirting with her, getting to know her, mm. Zeus shows up as a beautiful white bull among the king's herd. Of course, Europa is so awed by this bull, she wants to go investigate it and to pet it and to be close to it. <laughs> I mean, just like entranced by a white bull. Like, I think Europa needs a hobby. Oh, kid, it gets worse. <laughs> For some unclear reason, then, Europa climbs on the bull's back. What? And then, oh, okay, yep. And then the bull <laughs> slash Zeus runs off and brings her to Crete. Where Zeus either turns back into himself or turns into an eagle and proceeds to have sexual relations with her. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting here because in various forms of this myth, you'll see different words. You'll see seduce, ravage, rape, and you'll see them all used interchangeably, which is actually pretty common in these types of myths. But they are definitely not the same thing. No, definitely not. At any rate, Zeus makes her the first queen of Crete and gives her gifts including a necklace from Hephaestus, a bronze guardian of some kind, a hound that always catches his prey, and a javelin that never misses. In some stories, he gives her these presents and then has sex with her. 
In other stories, the presence come after the order of operations isn't clear. Mm-mm. But eventually, they do have three sons, one of which is the famous King Minos of Crete, of Minotaur fame. Mm -hmm. And an important footnote to this myth is that Hera never learned of this affair, which is why Europa got to be queen of Crete. Oh, of course. Makes sense. That's why it has a vaguely happy ending. Hera, for some reason, just didn't catch on this time? Nope. Guess not. Nope. Makes sense. (laughs) So that's the Greco-Roman myth. (laughs) Let's talk about the Babylonian myth, Kit. Well, this one is fun because it has a sort of twist. So this constellation was known as the Heavenly Bull in ancient Babylonian astronomy. And it's connected to a story about the warrior Gilgamesh from the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a poem that was preserved from ancient Mesopotamia. Yes, it is one of the oldest surviving written stories and is thought to be the template for Homeric epics and the Old Testament. It goes way, way back to the beginning. It's the OG mythos. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot going on in this epic, but for our purposes, Gilgamesh is a warrior who has to battle the heavenly bull who was sent by the goddess Ishtar to kill Gilgamesh because he spurned her advances. Damn, Ishtar does not take rejection all that well. Gilgamesh must have been fine. Gilgamesh has it going on. (laughs) You have to wonder because Ishtar is basically similar to or synonymous with the Sumerian goddess Inanna, who is the queen of heaven, a goddess of love, although not a goddess of marriage or motherhood. Mm -hmm. And she's often associated with the planet Venus. So it's kind of interesting that Gilgamesh is like, no, thank you. But he is. So Gilgamesh defeats the heavenly bull, Mm -hmm. but, you know, somebody in the story has to die because, you know, conflict. It's for good storytelling. This didn't become the template of all these oral traditions for nothing. (laughs) No. So Gilgamesh's former foe turned friend, Indiku, is killed as punishment for defeating the bull. Perfect trade. You kill my bull, I kill your friend. Mm Mm-hmm. So in terms of the Babylonian astronomy, the constellation that we know as Orion is usually Gilgamesh, and the constellation we know as Taurus is usually the heavenly bull or the foe sent by Ishtar. But sometimes in Babylonian astronomy, Gilgamesh is associated with the sun. Generally, the overall epic of Gilgamesh is actually a story about the futility of immortality. Quick analysis of these two. The second story has more murder, but less ravishing. Ravaging? I like that. And the moral of Gilgamesh is much better than Zeus gets what Zeus wants. I mean, I think your point, Zeus gets what Zeus wants, is kind of the analysis of the Europa myth in a nutshell. But I think this myth also shows us something about the positionality of women in this culture. So if anything, the story seems to suggest Europa was happy to be kidnapped. And we actually see a lot of examples of the regulation, trading, the treating of women as property, the sexual exploitation of women in Greek myth. We see it not only of mortal women like Europa and Io, as well as young men like Ganymede in the myth of Aquarius, but we also see this happen to goddesses like Persephone and Demeter. And I think this myth in a way operates as a reminder of that positionality of women. If goddesses and nymphs can't be respected, why would mortal women expect that? There's this constant threat of kidnapping or sexual assault, and it's just completely normalized in the myths, Mm -hmm. which is reflective of the patriarchy of its time. Yeah, definitely. And some ancient scholars try to reinterpret this myth in a rationalized way to say it's actually about trying to make sense of the kidnapping of young women. But why are women 
kidnapped? Why are they treated this way, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's all about their value and humanity or lack thereof, right? They're mm-hmm. dehumanized and just turned into objects to be consumed by Zeus. Yeah, although I will note the turning into animals to get with mortals is just kind of like a weird twist on this. I mean, in other myths, we do learn that gazing upon Zeus in his true form would kill a mortal, right? That is what happens to Semel. Uh, Hera tricks her into it, but but yeah. Yeah, I mean, the generous interpretation <laughs> is that Zeus doesn't think humans are much different from other animals. Mm. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's weird. Yes, it's definitely weird. And we do see again this issue of transformation, which seemed to be a big cultural focus and interest for this time period. Yeah, and this interest in transformation, it could be linked to the continued attempts of these people to understand the natural world and the phenomena within it, which are seemingly always changing. Yeah, definitely. And we've already seen some of these stories in other constellation myths like Capricornus and Aquarius. And I'm sure we'll see it again, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. The Gilgamesh story, on the other hand, is doing something completely different. It's Mm -hmm. a little hard to analyze because this is just one minor chapter of the Gilgamesh story. But this is a broader parable, like you said, about immortality. And we don't see it necessarily in that section. At the same time, The part of the story is a part of the hero narrative of Gilgamesh and just shows how long-standing these types of stories are. This persistence of a hero myth is likely rooted in our desire to make meaning. You know, humans want to believe that we'll have a legacy that will continue after we die. And so we see these types of narratives pop up since the beginning of storytelling itself. Right. Hero stories are ubiquitous, which, as you point out, suggests some underlying link to the human experience. And I think ultimately, even if we don't share anything else, all of us share mortality. And this story of Gilgamesh serves as a template for many of the stories that we still tell today. And yes, you can thank Gilgamesh anytime the sidekick of your favorite hero dies. Oh, Spock, Khan! <laughs> well, except, you know, wibbly wobbly sci fi Spock's. Alive. Yeah, Spock's often retconned. You know what? <laughs> Speaking of retcons, let's take a quick break and then we can retconstellation these myths. Welcome back to Starry Time. In this segment, Ret Constellation, we try to retell, complicate, or completely reboot the myths of the constellations of the month to make them either less problematic, or to modernize them, or in some cases just to make them make any sense at all. So Kit, we got a lot of work to do here today. Uh, once again, we have to clean up Zeus's disasters. Once again. Alright, here's my version. Keeping a lot of the same elements, Zeus mm-hmm. still takes the form of a bull. But instead of kidnapping anyone, this time the tables are turned. Mm. Europa still finds him out in the field, but this time she manages to trap him in bull form. And mm. since Zeus is technically immortal, every time Europa kills this bull to provide meat for the community, he regenerates and provides more meat for the community. <laughs> every time they eat him up, a new bull regenerates the next day. Eventually, Zeus is like, I can't keep being this, like, reborn dead bull thing. And he tries to come up with a compromise with Europa. Mm -hmm. Europa agrees to let him out of bull form as long as he promises to provide food and water for the Mm -hmm. city for all time. It's like, hey, you're free now. You don't have to be our food, but you still need to give us food. 
Anyways, the people are extremely impressed by Europa and her manipulation of Zeus, and that's why she becomes elected queen. Yeah, I like this. This is this is surprisingly less murdery than I expected from you. Yeah, I mean, I have a like a Zeus being killed over and over and over mm-hmm. again, but I well, think that'd be good for him. That might be good for him, and I feel like he gets punished, right? He's up to no good, and I love the twist of like Europa is the crafty one who tricks him, mm-hmm. right? Like captures him and then kills him. Yeah, that's that's good. I just expected a, a straight up revenge story, but you, this is good. Um, yeah, I wanted Zeus to actually do something useful. It's one thing to punish Zeus, but I think his least favorite thing to do is be helpful. Mm-hmm. So this is like for Zeus, this is like the ultimate punishment, punishment. really. Like this is worse than I think being trapped in bull form. Is yeah. having to actually like provide help for yeah help for people rather than just like coming up with new ways to annihilate them, which mm-hmm. seems to be his favorite pastime. Yeah, so my version took a little bit of a different take, also trying to make it more inspiring or less problematic. So in my version, Europa is still a Phoenician princess, but in my version, her family is trying to marry her off to some terrible prince of some other place Mm -hmm. because for some reason she's forbidden from being a ruler in her own right. Well, not for some reason, because she's a woman. Classic. Classic. So one day she's out in the fields feeling sad about the coming nuptials and she sees a white bull. The white bull, however, is sent from Tigate, who is one of the sisters of the Pleiades, who escaped Zeus through her own transformation courtesy of Artemis. So this bull was sent by a nymph to carry Europa to a new land where she becomes a ruler in her own right. And uh, maybe, you know, maybe it's magical, like you said, and it's a magical food source, and that's why she becomes queen. I think we could merge them, but um, but I like the punishment of Zeus. I just took Zeus out all the way. All of this is better than the original myth. Less mm-hmm. myth with Zeus is my takeaway, and I don't think you should feel bad for removing him from the myth at all. Oh, okay, so we dealt with Zeus. What about the Gilgamesh myth? Should we reconstellation it? What do you think? Uh, you know what? Let's not. There isn't a lot to work with here. You know, maybe Ishtar, don't threaten people who don't want to date you. I Mm. mean, you're literally the goddess of love and courtship. You can get anyone else. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe don't do that. But it's a good twist on the usual dude god going after mortals narrative already. So I don't think I want to change it. I think it's good. Yeah, I think it's good, too. I think also we're probably a little long this uh, month. So, yeah, if you're listening and you have a great Gilgamesh rec constellation you want to want to share with us, send it to us over at StorytimePod. I run our Twitter, so come be my friend there. If you have some Gilgamesh content that you've been dying to share with friends, now is the time. Now is the time. All right, Kit, time to wrap things up by getting a little less serious and a lot sillier. This, of course, is our final segment, Pop Culture Superstars. In this segment, we share our favorite and least favorite occurrences of this month's constellation in pop culture, and then we wish upon a star for what we think should exist. Mm -hmm, Definitely. Always a fun segment. We don't share any of our answers in advance. So, yeah, Jordan, do you want to start us off with your favorite appearance of Taurus in pop culture? Actually, I don't. I'm going to throw a little twist here. I want to start off actually with my least favorite Uh appearance of Taurus. And this is actually tied into my most favorite. So I think it will make more sense if if I start here, okay? So my least favorite is a manufacturer based in Brazil, 
gun manufacturers aren't my favorite. Anyways, would you like me to give my favorite now, or would you like well, to give your... So your right. favorite, what is it? Yeah, kid, I've had this plan since the beginning of the month. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like the first thing I came up with. Uh-huh. My favorite example of Taurus is the dinosaur Carnotaurus. The Ooh, name yeah. means flesh bull. The name, I've never even heard of this. Oh, you'll it's a pop cultural superstar. Just you wait. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, you might remember it. It's featured in the Disney film Dinosaur 2000. Mm. It's mm-hmm. the carnivorous antagonist predatory dinosaur. It's also featured on the Countdown to Extinction slash Dinosaur Ride mm. at Animal Kingdom. Love Starting it. to ring a bell a little bit. Yep, yep. Okay, great. Carnotaurus was discovered in the 1980s. And basically, I'm just going to turn this into a quick one-minute episode on this dino. So what should you know about Carnotaurus? Basically, it looks like a miniature T-Rex with these little horns above its eyes. What the horns are for, people aren't necessarily sure. The most recent theory is that these Carnotaurs would like to headbutt and play pushy-shovey with their snouts. So mm-hmm. it wasn't that they were hitting each other like rams, but apparently they'd study this behavior in iguanas with mm-hmm. similar horns above their eyes. And they decided maybe this makes sense to mm-hmm. the way the physiology of these horns and the skulls have been developed. That they might be just used for sort of like rubbing up against each other in like shows of dominance or courtship rituals. Also like T-Rex, Carnotaurus has teeny arms, <laughs> but not like T-Rex teeny. Like, okay. Kit, even teenier. Like wait, wait, smaller? Even smaller. Oh wow. Like they may as well be vestigial wow. at this point. Like <laughs> their arms are smaller than yours on like this thirty foot long predator. Um it's fascinating when you get to see one of the fossils or one of the mm-hmm. at, at a museum. It's just like I don't understand. Like they were only maybe like five million years away of evolution from losing them entirely. <laughs> but anyways, Car Taurus, definitely my favorite example of a Taurus uh-huh. in pop culture. One last quick fact, it's pretty light built for a predator. So some paleontologists have speculated it may have been one of the fastest meat-eating dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. So if you find yourself on Isla Nublar or Isna Sorna mm-hmm. and the Carnotaurs are loose, that might be one you shouldn't think you can run away from. And this one is different from the one... Um that got burned in Camp Cretaceous? Because that one also has little horns, right? Ah, uh, yes. There was a Carnotaurus in Camp Cretaceous. Yes. I think it was, wasn't it named Taurus or something yes. like that? Yes. Toro. Oh, Toro. Toro. Nailed it. Yes. Oh, so okay. Carnotaurus is a pop cultural phenomenon. Yep. It appears in the Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom movie where mm. it's seen facing off against a T-Rex as a volcano explodes in the background. <laughs> like I said, a little bit smaller than T-Rex, a little bit faster, tiny arms. Now you know a ton about Carnotaurus in case wow. anybody asks. Anyways, Kit, those are my favorite. That's my least favorite. Both killing machines from South America, (laughs) one of which I like infinitely more than the other. Mm -hmm. How about you? What was your favorite and your least favorite here for Taurus? So I'm going to start. I'll start with my least favorite because there's not a lot of substance here, and then I'll go to my favorite. So my least favorite, I agreed. I also saw the gun manufacturer. So, yep, second on that. Yeah, big cringe. Yep, and uh, I ended up going with the Ford Taurus. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Uh, obviously a mid-sized car produced between 1986 and uh, 2016. I think they're still making it or they stopped making it in 2019 in other places. And, you know, it's just it's just kind of a boring car. And it seems like if you're going to make a car named Taurus, it should, I don't know, be cooler. Yeah, have horns or something. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's just like the most boring looking sedan car. I mean, if you're mm-hmm. going to give Taurus a namesake, like, come on, spruce it up a little. Give us some additional features. For example, make it gold and eject a passenger seat like the Dodge Ram Aries edition. Which was an excellent choice last month and something that maybe the tourists could look up to as a role model of what a car could be. So that was my least favorite. My favorite, now there was a lot of things to choose from here and ultimately I went with Taurus Bulba. Do you know anything about Taurus Bulba? Uh Uh-uh. Can't say I do. Taurus Bulba is a villain from Darkwing Duck. Wow! (laughs) No, I didn't know about Taurus Bulba. Okay. Taurus Bulba, uh, also in the DuckTales reboot. What a pull. Yes, a giant bull. He's purple. I said what a pull, but also a giant bull. Even better. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Both a pull and a bull. (laughs) He's purple. Well done. So I like that. And he was originally in Darkwing Duck, voiced by Tim Curry, who I love. Wow, yeah. Clue fame. uh, My favorite movie, Clue. Mm -hmm. And he becomes a cyborg at some point. Wow. And comes back from life. So, yeah, he just seems great. Uh, Great villain. I like the uh, Darkwing Duck, DuckTales Yeah, I like that whole universe. In fact, Mm -hmm. next time I come visit you, I think it's time for a little Darkwing Duck sesh. We haven't done that in maybe two decades. And I want to know what the Cape Avenger, Cape Crusader's been up to. You know? Totally. I'm who sure doesn't? who who doesn't? Yeah, maybe he doesn't have a ride yet, but we can still catch him facing off against Taurus the Purple Bull. All right, yeah, that's a great choice, and I think we should combine these two again. You know, because <laughs> we have Toro the Carnotaurus villain in Camp Cretaceous. Mm-hmm. We need Taurus and Toro to join forces, take mm-hmm. on Darkwing Duck and the Camp Cretaceous kids. <laughs> that's the crossover that people have been waiting for. Uh huh. Yep. Well, it's only a matter of time before that one comes true. <laughs> but anyways. Okay, so we've got our favorites and our least favorites. How about what we wished for? Jordan, what did you wish for? Yeah, so I was on the Taurus disambiguation page on Wiki, mm-hmm. and there were so many different examples of a Taurus as a mode of transportation. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a Taurus car, a Taurus train. So I got to thinking what mode of transportation would I most want, and mm-hmm. the answer was easy. Of course, I personally want high-speed rail in America. I'm calling it the Taurus train line. And the first leg of it maybe starts out in New York and D.C., maybe Boston stops along the way, and both of these lines converge on Chicago. We can worry about the Pacific next. You know, (laughs) we got to start somewhere. But why Chicago, do you ask, besides it being a large Midwest city and a hub? How does this connect to Taurus? Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, Chicago is home to the six-time world champion Chicago Bulls. So, yeah, that's what I wish existed. Maybe oh, like on, like, that. a real core visceral level. Very pragmatic. I mean, I really didn't have very many good ideas. The only one was, like, a company that makes only faux 
white faux leather coats. <laughs> wow. Very specific. I like it. Great choice. And maybe, maybe you know, maybe there are horns on the shoulders. You wow. Know? It's like, know, a, like, like a like cowboy that. type of thing. Yeah. Maybe. Well, I don't know. Something just like, because I was thinking about like, it's a white bull. What it, you know, there is a, there are tourist clothing lines, but I really want them to dial in more to the white bull mythos. So we did our favorite and our least favorite. We came up with varying degrees of ideas <laughs> about what we wished existed. I think yours is probably more likely than mine, but it's only a matter of time, Kit. One of our wishes is bound to come true. Thank you for joining us as we learned all about the constellation Taurus. Next month on Starry Time, we'll learn about Gemini, the twins. This has been Kit and Jordan, sisters, lovers of stars and stories. And we'll see you next time on Starry Time.